Check out episode 55 and find out what a captain and freight insurance have in common. This is Two Babes Talk Supply Chain, where we interview the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about the best practices, changes in the industry, and hot topics in supply chain. We answer all your questions and put the sexy into your supply chain. We are your hosts, Sarah and Nick. Welcome back to all our listeners. Thank you for all the love you are showing us by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. It helps others to find us. Well, we are so excited today because we are talking to the president of UPS Mexico about how shared production is defining man. Augustine Picado, president of UPS Mexico, is responsible for aligning UPS's business, business objectives at corporate and regional level by designing strategies to strengthen the presence of the company in the Mexican market. Since January 2014, Augustine has taken over the leadership of UPS Mexico to ensure that the country's operations meet the standards of service that distinguish the company. Augustine, who has been working for UPS for 32 years, began his career with the company in 1985 as a part-time loader in the New Jersey metropolitan area. Thank you so much for joining us today, Augie. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me here today. It's a great pleasure. Great. So why don't you start off and tell us about your role as president of UPS Mexico? Sure. So uh, first of all, I have a, a great pleasure of leading a team of about 2,000 employees um, in Mexico. And a great part of what we do really is to, to help connect uh, companies and consumers in Mexico um, to companies and consumers around the world. Um, UPS is a, a company that connects more than 200 comp- countries around the world. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an important role within a country to have uh, all responsibilities of product, service, um, customer experience, um, responsibilities, uh, which is what I have in Mexico along with this uh, great team of people. Um, We have three business units in Mexico, uh, small package, we move heavy freight and warehousing, and we focus on some key industries um, that uh, really reflect the kinds of uh, industries that uh, Mexico is um, really uh, driving or that are driving the Mexican economy, including the automotive industry, high-tech, manufacturing, and, and most recently, aerospace. So it's, uh, it's an exciting place to be, and uh, it, uh, it's a lot of fun uh, working with companies that are um, working hard to, to satisfy their customers around the world. Excellent. What is trade, and how is it defined? Well, trade in its most simplest form is nothing more than the buying and selling of goods and services. That's obviously just pretty simple. Um, Many people think um, that comp- that trades as simple as um, in one country you have companies that manufacture and export products, and then you have um, in another country consumers that import and consume products. Um, and I think you know some of the criticism that we hear about trade is that sometimes people believe that the only the exporting country wins and that the importing country loses. Um, unfortunately, that's really not what we see in reality. Um, while it may seem like in its simplest form trade is between uh, two countries, the fact of the matter is today's complex supply chains and production processes 
are interconnect or are connecting companies in many different countries from around the world uh, to work together to build many of the products we use today. So trade is really not a binary uh, transaction between only two parties. It really is a complex um, iterative process or additive process between many companies in many countries around the world. Yeah, that's interesting and definitely not something that, that people think about all the time. And, and I believe you call that shared production, which we'll get to in a second. But um, on, the, on the trajectory of trade, how does trade affect manufacturing jobs? Well, you know, this is a, a, a sticky subject, right? So I think many uh, people believe um, in much of the rhetoric that is shared in the public domain that um, trade is the reason for um, declining manufacturing jobs in the U.S. Um, the reality is, I talk about in my TED Talk, that um, you know, 87% of lost U.S. manufacturing jobs from 2000 to 2010 were due to improvements in productivity. In other words, the automation of processes or the improvement in processes, which means that only a small percentage, around 10%, were due to offshoring. I think this is something that many just don't have a sense of. And in fact, in the U.S., being that I work and live in Mexico and, and, and work significantly moving goods back and forth between the U.S., Mexico, and even Canadian borders, I know that 6 million jobs um, in the U.S. are tied to exports to Mexico, and more than 20 million jobs in Mexico are tied to exports to the U.S. And it's not just a matter of products being purchased that are manufactured in Mexico in the U.S. and vice versa. There's an interconnected element between these two countries, and I'd even add in the third country, third member of NAFTA, that these production chains are interconnected, uh, which means that jobs in one country are also tied to jobs in the other country, all working together to produce finished products that are consumed not only in these three countries, but also all around the world. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, going back to what you said about majority of the manufacturing jobs are being are, are gone because of automation and not because of offshoring. I mean, a lot of people don't think about it that way. There's a lot of people that really, truly believe that a lot of the manufacturing jobs are gone because of the jobs going offshore. No, absolutely. And um, you know, I mentioned my, my TED Talk, and part of the, uh, I think, the motivation for me to kind of focus on this topic is that um, I am tied between these two countries that seem to be the epicenter of this conversation of, you know, where have the manufacturing jobs gone and, and is, in fact, the U.S. being uh, negatively impacted. Um, and, yeah, the, the reality is, and there's studies out there, including uh, one that I quote in my talk from Ball State University, that, that does, in fact, quantify um, that uh, improvements in our own productivity through automation, through robots, are really um, the reason that uh, manufacturing jobs are declining. And, and the unfortunate part of all of it is that those jobs that are being displaced through automation they're gone for good. Um, they're not jobs that are going to come back um, if we implement a new trade policy. Um, they're gone because robots or processes have displaced people. Yeah, and that's, that's interesting because it's, it's really only just the beginning. So just so our audience knows, we're going to have the link to Augie's TED Talk 
on the website so that you can go and check out his full talk there. All right. A few minutes ago, Sarah said something about shared production. Could you enlighten us what is shared production and how it works? Yeah, sure. So shared production is kind of like a, uh, if you want to think about a school project. Um, in my spare time, I serve as a judge for one of the local schools here. They have a business case um, initiative that they run each year, and then they have a local competition. And it's interesting to see the students, uh, they all come in, and each student has their own expertise. Um, there's uh, typically somebody that's good at numbers. There's a good uh, writer. Um, there's a good public speaker, somebody that's good with graphics. Each person has their own specialized activity that they're good at, and the team comes together, and they work on this case, and then the finished product is ultimately presented um, by someone on the team. And that's pretty similar to what a shared production process is like, where um, companies or processes are specifically um, worked on um, in different places, in different countries, by different companies, and then they all come together, all the components come together in a finished product. So basically, companies focus on what they do best and most efficiently, and then they trade for the rest, and one final company does the, the assembly, and that way um, you see economies of scale and efficiencies, um, and at the same time, you see improvements in the quality of the product as well because each company is truly focusing on what they do best. Absolutely. So can you give us an example of shared production? I, I think it's more prevalent in automotive and aerospace. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it, it's, if you think about um, just a car, um, the, the manufacturing of a car, I'll run through a really quick example. Um, in, um, if you want to start, I'm just going to kind of give, not, it, this is a little hypothetical, but it's real. So picture that in, uh, in Mexico, there's a port city in Mexico, say Veracruz, where there is um, oil being pumped in out of the Gulf of Mexico. And that oil is moved in rail cars um, to Texas, to Houston, to the refineries in Houston. And in Houston, those, uh, that, that crude oil, aside from turning into gasoline, they also process it and they manufacture um, resin pellets, basically the, the, the raw material for plastic. Um, those resin pellets, tons of them, are then shipped back into um, the Bajillo in, uh, in Mexico, the central part of Mexico, where there are plants that then would convert that um, resin into liquefied plastic poured into molds and they would manufacture the inside of a glove compartment. Those glove compartment boxes are then moved to um, Detroit, Michigan, where they are assembled into a dashboard, a full dashboard, so basically an assembly. All the components, all the air conditioning ducts, the radio, everything put together, and those finished assemblies are then returned back to Mexico to an automobile assembly plant, say one in Chihuahua or Hermosillo. And in that final assembly plant, you now have all these parts um, that have been moving back and forth across the border, coming in to become a part of a fully assembled automobile. And then ultimately, those automobiles make their way back into the U.S. market. Now, I've only talked about like five transits across the border. The Wilson Institute talks about um, having done a study that shows that some parts in an automobile can move back and forth across the border 
up to eight times before they find their way into a finished car. And I just gave you a simple example of five times with just one very specific component of a car. So multiply that out times the thousands of parts that are in a car, you can see how truly integrated um, this production chain is and how each of these manufacturers relies on the other in order to assemble a fully uh, manufactured car. Wow, that's a really great example. I mean, the fact that one component can move back and forth eight times is amazing, just just for one car. But anyway, so you talked about automotive. What other types of commodities move back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico? I mean, if you look at just looking at some simple stats, um, I, I think it's uh, interesting to, to find that um, from U.S. exports to Mexico, um, Mexico makes up almost 16% of U.S.'s exports, which is a, a considerable amount, but not as much as the, 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 the reverse. And if you look at some of the top categories that are going from um, the U.S. to Mexico, machinery is the top category at about $42 billion. Then electrical machinery, just a little bit slightly below that. Vehicles are about $21 billion. Mineral fuels like oil, refined oil, um, is about $20 billion. And then plastics are $16 billion. So a lot of the things I just talked about in the supply chain really make up a big chunk of what goes from the U.S. back to Mexico. And then if you look at Mexico to the U.S., um, the story's a little different. Uh, between, depending on what source you look at, between 70 and 80 percent of Mexico's exports go to the U.S. Um, $74 billion of them are vehicles, finished vehicles. Um, electric machinery is about $63 billion. Um, general machinery is about $50 billion. Agricultural products is about $21. Mineral fuels or oil, crude oil about $14 billion. and then believe it or not, optical and medical equipment, some pretty sophisticated um, products at, tw at $12 billion. The one thing I do want to mention as well that, that really falls inside of machinery, vehicles, and electric machinery, one of the fastest growing industries in Mexico, and it's very much tied to the U.S., is aerospace. It's been growing um, in considerable double digits for the last 20 years, um, and it's now their exports, about $7 billion of just aerospace, which is contained within the numbers I just gave you. But it's, it really is dominated. While there's only two original equipment manufacturers in Mexico, there's a network of almost 300 companies of aerospace manufacturers that supply the likes of Boeing, Bombardier, um, Airbus, um, with assemblies and subassemblies for some pretty sophisticated um, machinery, airplanes, basically. Hmm. So would you say that majority of those commodities would be on a share production capacity with the U.S. Or, or Mexico, vice versa, depending if it's going in or coming out? I would say almost all of them are inside of a shared production process. Um, I, I would, you could probably find one or two, but I think you'd be hard-pressed um, uh, to do so. I believe probably every last one of these is inside of a shared production process. Yeah, because you could even use agriculture, could you not, in a share production aspect? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, agriculture, I mean, there are some elements of agriculture that become a part of, um, like, a processed food. Mm -hmm. As an example, that the raw material um, could be grains that might be manufactured um, on the other side of the border and then sold uh, back to the other side of the border. I don't know enough about that, but um, I would say it's, probably not 
crazy to think that that's happening. Yeah, no, I just wanted to put it into context for the listeners that, you know, share production is is in all sorts of commodities. It's in all sorts of things, you know. goes back and forth from Mexico to the U.S. and vice versa. It even comes into Canada for some components, depending on what the commodities are. So just wanted to broaden that commodity base of what people are thinking of when they're thinking about share production. Well, and if I could just get, let me say one more comment on that. I think there's an interesting thing that uh, the average American or Canadian uh, might not know. Um, the largest um, bread company in the U.S. is not an American company. It's actually Bimbo, um, which is a Mexican company. They have, through acquisition, really grown their infrastructure. And obviously, I have to believe that they're sourcing um, their raw materials, whether it's you know wheat or flour that uh, is making its way into their products. And uh, I just think that's an interesting piece since you brought up the, uh, the point of agriculture. Absolutely. So, Augie, by building a wall or significant changes to NAFTA or in NAFTA, how would this disrupt the flow? Yeah, so I guess that's the question that uh, many of us North Americans are concerned about these days. And, um, you know, the bottom line is that when you restrict trade, you increase the cost of raw materials, components, and finished products moving in the supply chain. So if you talk about a wall, and I would even say that the talk of a wall, this is my interpretation, um, is, is not just a physical wall, but it's also every time a wall has been talked about historically over the years between the U.S. and Mexico, and believe me, it's not a new discussion. This goes back many decades. Um, th- there have been many attempts or discussions about walls, and the one common thread across all of these discussions is that it's not just a physical barrier, it's also a barrier to um, impede the flow of people and goods across the border, either through more revisions of products, either through more barriers, or just simply increasing the, the wait time at the border. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things create costs. And, you know, one of the things that I, I just, my view of the world is that if, you're, you're, if your goal is to build a wall to stop immigration, then you're not likely going to keep a lot of border crossings open because you can't stop immigration if you make your wall out of Swiss cheese. You really would have to potentially reduce the number of crossings, which would funnel more traffic of the already congested crossings to a smaller number of crossings. As that happens, delays begin to stack up, and what ends up happening is that these delays can, will, not can, they will make the crossings um, less reliable. And so today, many companies in the supply chain are using ground freight to move things from Mexico to the U.S. to Canada and back. And so if those physical border crossings on the ground became increasingly unreliable, companies would begin to fly product. And I'll give you the perfect example. Um, In January of this year, when there were significant protests around Mexico because of two things, maybe three things. Number one, there was a 20% increase in fuel tax um, that was imposed on the 1st of January. Number two, that was driven by or the result of increase in or actually devaluation of the peso. Um, It got up to almost 22 pesos to the dollar 
um, which was causing fuel to be more expensive since, since much of it's refined in uh, the U.S. and then brought back. And then last, there were the threats from the current administration about um, whether it was Ford or Carrier or whatever company um, was being uh, mentioned as um, having operations in Mexico. So all of that activity in the market caused um, roadblocks, caused um, all kinds of protests throughout Mexico, and the roads leading to the border, several of them were blocked. In fact, uh, roads in and out of Chihuahua, which is uh, a place where a lot of aerospace and automotive components are manufactured, um, nearly all of them were blocked. And so the companies started to call us and said, hey, listen, we need to fly, we need to fly this stuff out. Because if we don't fly it out, we're going to get a fine, a penalty by our customer, which in many cases is an automobile assembly plant in the U.S., and those fines can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and therefore upgrading to air is a lot cheaper, although it's a lot more expensive than moving something on the ground. It's a lot cheaper than a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar fine by your manufacturer. And so we had uh, a sp there was a spike in this kind of activity um, just because the border crossings were affected and uh, companies were in fear of being penalized by their customers, and so they started to fly. Now, um, that's not something that's sustainable. In the short term, you can absorb those costs. In the long term, they're going to be passed along to the consumers in terms of higher prices. And I think that's the risk of um, having a border wall impeding trade. Um, ultimately, what you do is that cost needs to get passed on to somewhere, and ultimately it's going to come to you and me um, as consumers. Yeah, and just disrupting that flow. I mean, if there's that many goods going back and forth and back and forth, you know, it, it's not just going to, it's going to, there's going to be costs just because of those delays, not just because of the delays at the border because they're shrinking those borders, but again, just getting it back and forth. And you're right, those costs come to you and I. I mean, who else is there to pay for it? Right? So we've talked about sort of the NAFTA countries. We've talked about Canada, U.S., Mexico. How is all of this affecting trade around the world? Because shared production isn't just for, you know, Canada, U.S., Mexico. Shared production is done all over the world. You can buy, you know, zipper components in, let's say, Italy, you know, for some luggage, some high-end luggage or, or different things like that. So how is all of this, you know, with all of the changes maybe in NAFTA or even building a wall, it's not just going to affect our countries, it's going to affect the whole whole world. So what does that look like? Yeah, well, I mean, so let's not kid ourselves. This is not just about NAFTA, right? So um, you could put a broader uh, terminology to what's going on and call it protectionism. And you could, uh, you know, protectionism is something that was manifested in, in Cuba. Um, you know, North Korea is a country that, that clearly um, is negatively affected by protectionist policies. But, you know, pre Brexit is argued to be a, a nationalistic or protectionist kind of uh, a, a result of um, what people believe was causing negative things to happen um, in the UK and the French election, there was a great deal of debate around um, protectionism and more uh, conservative, nationalistic approaches to um, to managing the country. So clearly, this is not something that is 
uh, being talked about just in the NAFTA countries. This is something that's being talked about around the world. And I think the thing that people forget, um, and you mentioned a couple of examples, but I want to just put a couple out there that I think will shock people. Um, think about a, a plane, the Boeing Dreamliner. I mean, it has 2.3 million parts. And there's major assembly, 2.3 million parts in, in an aircraft. And they're not all made in Seattle at the Boeing factory. Um, there are major assembly units, um, components, that have thousands of parts each. And so Boeing is shipping in parts from Canada, the U.K., Italy, Japan, South Korea, France, um, Sweden, Australia. And these are all parts coming in from all over. So if we start to see impacts, because I, I did mention two of the NAFTA countries in there, U.S. and Canada, I know that um, while major sub-assemblies may not be in that list of countries, I know that lower-tier manufacturers are in Mexico making important parts as well for um, Boeing aircraft that get shipped to, to Seattle um, every day. So think about the implications of disrupting across all of those. Um, I mentioned France, protectionist discussions happening there. I mentioned the U.K., um, I mentioned South Korea. I mentioned. I mean, there's a lot of countries in here that are in, uh, that have been engaged in some sort of protectionist discussion in the last 12 to 18 months. So this is not something that's limited to NAFTA countries. And then if you think of the most ubiquitous product that we all have, um, the iPhone. Um, you know, the iPhone. There's a, an Ohio State University paper that shows that there's 34 major components. It's manufactured in eight countries. Hundreds of suppliers. I mean, there's 300 suppliers in China building components for the iPhone, 100 in Japan, 50 in the U.S., and then there's more in the Europe, South America, and also where I work and, and live in Mexico City. So if you just think about how disruptions to moving product across any of these countries can really start to have, it can affect from that simple thing that we all carry around in our back pocket or on our purse or, you know, to the, to the plane that we use to travel around the world. It, it can have a, um, a significant impact um, on many of the products that we use every single day. So the $100 question is, what is next for UPS Mexico? Well, um, look, I, I don't think, look, I'm optimistic about what's going to happen here with um, the NAFTA discussions. I, I believe that um, there is a, a wealth of information um, in the market. I believe that officials um, in all governments understand um, and listen to the business community or they're listening to the business community. And that while we would all agree, any business person that works in any one of these three countries would tell you there's definitely things we can fix with NAFTA. Um, uh, it is a, uh, a tool that has benefited the three countries and all the companies that, that work. So I'm optimistic that we're going to have um, – we're going to continue in, in a situation that's beneficial for the three um, participating countries in NAFTA, and, and I have to repeat that because obviously it's important to me. I think that Mexico's positioned as a country extremely well. Um, they clearly have built a manufacturing base. Um, they have skilled, incredible amount of skilled workers in high-tech, in manufacturing processes. 
Um, they are, uh, there's some really interesting public-private partnerships. You know, Mexico graduates 100, more than 100,000 engineers a year from its university system. And with a third of the population of the U.S., that's almost the same number of engineers that are graduating from the U.S. university systems. Um, they also have the benefit of low-cost labor, their proximity to markets like Canada and the U.S. And the most important one is that everything that we've just talked about here, the interconnected uh, production chains that exist, not only between the NAFTA countries, but between um, Mexico and many of its trading partners, um, positions it as, as a country that continues to, will continue to be, um, to have a strong role um, in the world producing products. And therefore, UPS needs to be there to meet the needs of these companies that require reliable, flexible movement of goods. Um, they need help in moving uh, through the customs processes that can sometimes be slow, um, can sometimes um, cause uh, delays. And as I mentioned uh, throughout our discussion here today, those delays ultimately as they sum up, can begin to impact costs for a product and then ultimately can cause a company to be uncompetitive with its final price to its consumers if they're not able to handle them. So our goal is to be there to help design and operate um, efficient supply chains for our customers that allow them um, to focus on their manufacturing and what they do best and allow us to help maintain the efficiency of their supply chain to ensure that they can keep their costs low and to continue to be competitive and grow. Absolutely. Well, we're extremely excited to see what is next for you for UPS in Mexico. We're really excited that you came on the show today. Just want to say a quick thank you, but I also want to let everybody know that Augie is passionate about that earthquake that uh, went through Mexico a little while ago really passionate that he started a You Caring page. Um, us here at Two Babes have gone on and donated to it because there's a lot of people in Mexico that are in need. So if you can, we're going to put the link up at our website. But again, just for you here, it's www.youcaring.com forward slash UPS Mexico employees impacted by the earthquake dash nine five nine 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 six so if you can go on there and help Augie would definitely be appreciated and um, thank you again Augie for coming on the show lots of great insights and for our listeners again we're gonna have the link to your TED talk on our website as well to babestalksupplychain.com you're very welcome thank you very much for the opportunity are you struggling to make the most out of your supply chain and keep your orders moving efficiently? IceCorp is your supply chain specialist and they specialize in e-commerce, retail and drop ship distribution. They will provide you with tailor-made solutions that will drive your business and sales forward. Get your free assessment, visit them at icecorplogistics.com. Check out their learning center as they have some great free resources waiting for you. Thank you, Augie, for joining us today. To learn more, remember to visit our website. We will have all the links to the Mexico Relief Fund and as well as Augie's TED Talk on the subject. Join us next time as we talk to PathGuide about WMS does not mean warehouse made simple. This episode was produced by Mike Mazurik. We are your host, Nick and Sarah. 
please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And remember, folks, ship happens.